Good morning, and welcome to Midpoint Wednesday. I'm Shelley Rebeck, your host for WMNF's Mid-Florida, Mid-Week, Mid-Morning dose of news and public affairs with a local perspective. You are listening to WMNF 88.5 FM, Tampa Bay's only independent, commercial-free FM radio, brought to you by you because we are supported by generous listeners just like you. It is December 14th, 2022. It's almost Christmas, the winter solstice, and a host of other religious and secular holidays. And at this time of year, amid all the festivities, our thoughts turn to acts of service, or at least I hope they do. And if they don't, well, we are going to take this hour to talk about why they should. Personally, I am not a religious believer. My faith is more a born into affinity and a cultural touchstone for me. Like you're either a Yankees or a Mets fan. It's Buffalo or Miami. You believe in one or the other. But I have great respect for those religious communities that don't just talk the talk, but actually walk the walk of service as an integral part of their expression of faith. And I believe that my two guests today are examples of that. And they are here today to talk about what they are doing to express their faith through service and advocacy in the area of criminal justice reform. Now, regular Midpoint listeners know that before I began hosting this radio show, I was a criminal defense lawyer for more than 30 years. I began with a prisoner's rights legal clinic in law school that took me into the notorious Attica prison in New York State. Attica was and is a maximum security prison. I was there to visit with prisoners about their conditions of confinement in the SHU, S-H-U, the Special Housing Unit, which is a form of solitary or protective custody. My very first client then was a prisoner with the beautiful name of Alonzo Starling. You always remember your first. What I saw and heard about the conditions of confinement in the Attica shoe was heartbreaking and horrible, and it stayed with me as a motivating force to try to keep people out of prison or to mitigate their sentences in prison for the rest of my career. My guest, Thad Baraday, has also taken on that responsibility. Thad was a high-powered lawyer who had risen in his career to be general counsel for WellCare Health Plans in Tampa when, in 2007, WellCare was raided by 200 FBI agents. The raid was followed by federal indictments of many of the company's top executives, Thad among them, for what amounted to basically a Medicaid fraud scheme. Now, shortly before the executive's trial began in 2013, Thad learned that he had leukemia. His case was separated from the others, and his was delayed so he could go through treatment, while the others, except for one, were eventually convicted at trial. In 2015, while waiting for his trial, Thad's cancer returned. And after he beat it a second time, he had had enough of the pressure and uncertainty of the criminal charges hanging over his head. When the government offered him a plea agreement to admit his guilt in exchange for a likely lower sentence, he took it like 98% of all criminal defendants in federal court, even though Thad's came with a six-month sentence to a federal prison camp, followed by a year of home confinement with an ankle monitor, and then a period of supervised release, which actually terminated in December 2019. Then, on January 20th, 2021, along with the other WellCare defendants, Thad woke up to the news of an unexpected, full and unconditional presidential pardon from Donald Trump. 
It was the gift of mercy that motivated Thad to want to bring more compassion, justice, and relief to others in the criminal justice system. And he's here today to tell us about that. Welcome, Thad. Thank you, Shelley. I'm honored and grateful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to have you. And also with us is Thad's pastor, the Reverend Justin LaRosa, minister at the Portico, which is the Hyde Park United Methodist Church's non-traditional branch downtown on Florida Avenue. The Portico has, among other social outreach programs, a justice ministry through which Thad has worked since his release. Welcome, Reverend LaRosa. Happy to have you with us, too. So grateful to be present here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thad, let me start with you. You're now also the host of a podcast called Redemption Radio. Great name, by the way. Um, so let me ask you first, what, what does redemption mean to you? Is it personal to you, like a form of accountability or remorse? Or is it societal? Is it something that you think a society that often delivers injustice instead of justice needs? Or is it something else? What does redemption mean to you? To me, redemption has been the holy grail. It's been how do we seek it? How do we obtain it? And to whom is it available? I have struggled with the scriptural message that redemption is available to all of us, even to people like me who've made mistakes and been condemned by society. And when I was inside prison, I met an awful lot of innocent people. You know, everyone's innocent yeah. in, in jail. Yeah. And some people deserve punishment. And yet the calling of my faith, and you spoke a little bit about religion, and for me, this is a faith walk and a faith journey. But the calling of my faith is that redemption and forgiveness is available to everyone. And I really struggled with that idea as a public policy matter, thinking about crime and punishment. To, is redemption really available for all of us? That certainly does not seem to be the way that society is treating people who come into contact with the criminal justice system. It seems to me to be an approach of universal condemnation and punishment. And I would like to help make the system a little bit more merciful. But I launched the podcast Redemption Radio to explore these very ideas and to document my own journey and struggle with when is redemption available for well, us. Let me ask you, were you a religious person before you went to prison? Yes, I was. I uh, was a good Sunday Christian my whole life. Okay. I, I so, went to church, you know, I wore a suit, I prayed, I tried to do good things, but well, I really realized I needed to live my faith day to day, which I wasn't doing. In um in prison, according to, I've listened to some of your podcasts before today's show, and, and one of the things you said was that you became involved in a Christian men's group because it was almost the only activity offered by the prison, that there was no drug and alcohol rehab, there was no skills training programs, and although you did become a landscaper. <laughs> so um, do you think that the concept of redemption and working for justice reform would have come to you without being coded in the layers of religion or the language of Christianity that you found in prison? I, I always wonder about that because so many, you know, white collar defendants who go to prison come out 
with religion, with jailhouse religion, with jailhouse religion, but 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 some you know very sincerely and who've who've done extraordinary work in in through faith communities in criminal justice issues and prison reform issues like Charles Colson, for example, one of the Watergate burglars, right. you know, started the Colson Ministries, and you know, uh, so I, I'm not suggesting that it's not in, it's not sincere or or anything. I'm just wondering, you know, whether because there's such a limited exposure to outs- the outside world and outside concepts, there's so much enforced idleness when you're in prison. Um, you know, religion is 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 your thing. Well, you know the phrase: when the student is willing, the teacher will appear, and it certainly takes willingness on the part of whomever it is to seek a more spiritual life, to seek openness to new concepts, new ideas that can help us live our life better and and make our life more at peace. So I was open to it when I went to prison. There were many others inside who were not and did not participate in uh, those same programs. I think had I not been willing, I could not have engaged in the depth of faith that I found in jail. And did were you connected to Reverend LaRosa before you went to prison? It's funny, uh, Pastor LaRosa was literally among the first people that I looked to when I got out. Before I went inside, we had met each other briefly, but we were not really connected. When I got out, I felt very called to service, even though I did not have community service as a part of my sentence. I just knew that it was the right thing for me to give back to the community and learn to serve. And with my background, I grew up fairly privileged. Service was really something I had never done before. So I went to the Portico, which is a very socially justice motivated community. And I asked Pastor Justin, teach me to serve. And boy, did they ever. I I think the Portico that uh, Justin has uh, shepherded and helped to create is a citadel of social justice warriors changing the world at the grassroots level, one person at a time, and it certainly helped to change me in my own walk. Yeah, now you had plenty of inner and outer resources that so many people in prison do not have or have never developed when you went in. And, and uh, you know, even with so much else being stripped away from you, your health, family, your profession, ambition, uh, you know, professional ambition, personal ambition, you were still respectfully so privileged compared to so many uh others in the in the criminal justice system you're white you're rich you're educated you were a non-violent white collar prisoner at a club fed really um you know which people have probably heard yeah, about I think that's a misnomer it's not quite a club but yeah <laughs> but it was a federal prison camp it think was of not, the world's worst camp you could yeah. ever imagine it's more like that. <laughs> right yeah. right but it wasn't like a maximum or even a minimum security uh facility, we although you could to, see it. Yeah, we yeah. were adjacent to a medium, and so the landscaping that I did was in and around the medium security So you could see, you know, yeah. you couldn't see inside, of course, but you could see, you know, you could see that it was a much different place, the medium security from the camp. Yeah, and in federal prison camp, you are surrounded by people who, have com- who are completing sentences of often very long duration. So I was in and around men who had come from mediums or even high security facilities who had all sorts of different sentences and backgrounds that they were 
looking forward to completing and ultimately gain, gaining release. So in many cases, the camp was sort of the last step program to those. Before a halfway out. house or, or home confinement or something. So it wasn't just like a bunch of white collar finance guys no. in Club Fed. It <laughs> no, wasn't. No. I think that's important for people to understand because that's the image that, you know, you get from television and things like that. Yeah, and I get asked that a lot and I say, you know, federal prison stinks and I would not recommend it. Yeah. I really would not wish it on my worst enemy, but uh, there are circumstances, and despite what I said about my feeling about our justice system, there are circumstances where the system works for people. Yeah. And I've met many people in my journey of criminal justice reform who do find religion or do find rehab or do find redemption um, through rehabilitation programs, training, whatever. There are many wonderful people working in the system to try and make it better, and I don't want to take anything away from those who have come before me, I do feel that we need to bring great and greater awareness and education around the systemic injustice that the criminal justice system is imposing on society, which I really did not know about before it came and hit me in the face. Well, you know, we've talked about the fact that you had a lot going for you when you went in and how that's different from so many people who get absorbed into the criminal justice system, particularly those in the state systems, which is very different from the federal system, much less resources and, you know, a much tougher road to hoe if you're involved in the state system. And that is exactly the message that I've tried to carry in my own advocacy, Shelley. You don't have to cry crocodile tears for me. I grew up with a privileged background. I did have a lot of resources. I had a lot of support around me and access to everything that one could have. And yet I still got, in my opinion, fairly rough treatment by the system. I mean, that was my next question. Do you feel that you were treated justly because of your privilege or, or anything else? Do you feel that you got justice as you conceive of it? That's a really hard question for me to reckon with. I, I really leave to others the question of whether or not the system treated me fairly. I believe that the universe was working with me in the way that the universe needed to in order to bring me into a greater alignment with my own mission and purpose and in service to higher needs than money, wealth, status, and power. What I feel were the, I call them false gods that I pursued for most of my life. All right, you're listening to WMNF Radio 88.5 in Tampa, and we are talking about redemption and about criminal justice reform with Thad Baraday, a former lawyer and former prison inmate who now advocates for criminal justice reform, and with Pastor Justin LaRosa, a Methodist minister and social justice advocate. If you have questions or comments for our guests, you can call us at 813-239-9663. You can email dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-433-0885. Pastor LaRosa, let me turn to you and and ask you to tell us about this justice ministry at the Portico and what uh, what you're trying to do through that community. Sure, uh, but before I get there, I want to go back to redemption. You asked what what is redemption about, and so I want to just say very succinctly, Redemption is about restoration of relationship. At the end of the day, it's about restoring relationship 
um, in, in a spiritual sense, it's a restoring relationship between you and a higher power, between you and yourself, between you and others. And then this movement of restoring things um, in this world here and now, right? And so I see redemption as a restoration of relationships with higher power, with self, with others, and with this whole, you know, some of these uh, system inequities that we've been talking about. That's a part of what redemption is about from my view. Um, so, uh, the portico um, and some of the justice uh, things that we're doing down there. We have a justice team. And one of the things that I think faith communities and, and many forms and, and non-faith communities sometimes do well is charity, right? We want to do good works. We want to help those uh, in, on the margin you know, on the margins, on the edges, who are suffering, um, who don't have access to maybe the even the things that we're talking about before. Charity is a beautiful and necessary thing. And I want to say, as boldly as I can, charity is a lot easier than justice. <laughs> All right? And so, um, and I believe as a part of faith that it's not just about... Um, kind of getting getting on a spaceship somewhere after you die it's about restoring relationship here and now and 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 creating both its individual brokenness and systematic brokenness that we're called to change and so um uh, i could go on and on but the short version well, is the portico is working on justice issues as well as charity issues and some of the things that we're doing is we're looking at criminal justice reform we're looking at affordable housing and we're partnering with different um communities and people interested in those things well let me ask you both um i'll start with you thad but what would your vision of criminal justice reform look like um what do we need that we don't have today that would make us a more just society? What are you working toward? Yeah, so I get asked that question all the time and it's challenging. I need to come up with a better soundbite answer, but we have created such a massive prison industrial complex over decades on a bipartisan basis to disenfranchise communities of poverty, which are com communities of, of color and ethnic minorities. And it's gonna take a lot of work at a lot of levels to fix it. So the the first answer to your question would be, I think incarceration, separation from society and removal from whatever community you're in to jails or prisons should be the option of last resort. We should save that sanction for the worst kinds of conduct where community safety is really at risk or someone else's individual sanctity has been harmed through violence, intimidation, manipulation, what have you. Could could be, could even be white collar, you know, circumstances because there's an argument that white collar defendants like me need to be treated severely to prevent those types of behaviors from occurring. So I, I get that. And that maybe goes back to your question of whether or not I was treated fairly personally. But we use carceral punishment so much more broadly than we need to in society in order to address a broad array of ills. And we should reserve that high-level sanction for things that really need it. And so things that we could agree upon are like treatment of mental health and substance abuse. We don't need to put people in prison who have mental health issues. Sometimes we may need to if they're truly a threat, 
but there are better, less severe, less interventionist ways, community-based ways that we can deal with challenges of mental health and substance abuse short of our nation's jails and prisons. Uh, you started by saying that uh, you you believe, and I, I, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but basically that, you know, we are... Um, we are basically criminalizing people in poverty, and in large measure, uh, that works its, its uh, terrible magic against communities of color. Is that just right? just so happens to work that way, yeah. again and again and again. And but, it's curious, you know, nowadays, the, the definition of woke in the state of Florida is believing that there is systemic injustice that needs to be addressed. So... We are by definition woke today, which originally was meant to be awake and aware and alert to what's happening. But we are by definition woke today for acknowledging the fact that systemic injustice has been occurring in our criminal justice system for decades, really since the era of Reconstruction and Jim Crow era laws that were put in place uh, after the dismantling of slavery. So... So, you know, you, you, you bring me to what, what I really wanted to, to direct your attention to, and that is, before the show, you and I had a conversation, and, and at one point you said something to the effect of, you know, because I, I, uh, I've come to this through uh, service, I really try and stay out of politics um, in discussing uh <laughs> In discussing it's hard this. to do, isn't it? I, I, As you said to me, it's very hard to do. Yeah, it's very, I mean, in Florida, we have a governor that says he doesn't believe we have systemic injustices. And here you are explaining how, indeed, you know, the, the system is, is based on systemic injustices that have been cultivated, you know, for, for at least 100 years. And, uh, you know, so my question to you is, uh, since since your focus is on service, you try to stay out of politics, but how can we achieve your vision of a just society um, on service alone without being politically engaged? Well, one of the nice things about the issue of criminal justice reform is that it is bipartisan. There are advocates on the right who are very libertarian and concerned about individual liberty and personal freedom who are concerned about efficiency and how we use and allocate resources in society, or, or even just from a taxpayer cost perspective, we spend on average $30,000 a year per prisoner per year in the state of Florida to house those people. And we're responsible as taxpayers for all of their medical care, all of their needs. And that's a very expensive way for our government to address challenges in society. And many, many, probably the vast majority of those people are no longer a threat to community safety. So why do we spend all that money that way? If we reallocated a small portion of those resources towards education, investment, job training, truly redemptive and rehabilitative types of programs, it would be a much more effective use of taxpayer resources. Yeah, but we uh, wouldn't have private corporations like oh, Geo, for example, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, benefiting their stockholders, uh, you know, on you can't running put private profit, prisons. You can't put profit motive at the, the bottom of a criminal justice system, right? We could also change how, you know, 
clerks of the court get funded through fines and fees that fund that that are yeah that just keeps people locked in well the that's system. the insti- that's what you're talking about that's the you know by the way uh, i have there have been people at the, the congregation over the years that have said, you know, you got to stay out of politics. And, and I said, as a person trying to stumble in the way of Jesus, uh, the most political statement you could ever make in the first century is Jesus Christ is Lord. So we, we must be political and not partisan as we engage uh, these things that when, especially when we're trying to restore relationship and restore opportunity and give people equity of opportunity, we must engage the political because uh, politics is where every clerk have in, in the state of Florida may have different rules around paying of fines and fees. Right. And, you know, to, to do a little test basis, we have a couple, uh, we have a, a not-for-profit called Portico Housing Solutions and those guys coming out of, you know, uh, jails and prisons, et cetera, have racked up fees in different um, different uh, counties. Yeah, different jurisdictions, right? and they're all different, and there's no central database, and they've made it basically impossible for you're, people you're to exactly clear right. their obligations, their financial obligations. Right. Now, the law says, uh, Pastor LaRosa, that you have to stay out of politics Correct. in your church, and you have to stick to saving souls, which is the charity element that I think you mentioned earlier, and, and to helping individuals rise above their circumstances and their personal challenges. But I I just wonder if um, what what I hear you saying is that's kind of nibbling around the edges of the problems that lead to injustice. Or do you think, like the Talmud says, that whoever saves one life saves the world entire? Like, you know, if you, you know, if you help one person, it's like helping, helping the world. I mean, I think that's a, it's, there's beautiful truth in that. And, and, and just to clarify what I meant about politics is that we engage we engage issues that hit people, and 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 we're, th- what salvation is isn't it about an individual uh, restoration? Although I believe in that, it's more than that. Salvation is individual and it's communal, and that's what we're called to do. All right, let me let me take a call here from Bonnie, who's been very patient. Thank you for holding on, Bonnie. Uh, what are your comments? Uh, good morning. Um, my name is Connie Bergman. I would just, I have great appreciation for the work of these brothers. But, and they've laid it out correctly as well as you. The missing piece is, in my opinion, is that if we have to challenge for justice, that means we have to take the system and put the system on trial. We can't be talking about rehabilitation, and yet there's no existing services for these individuals to come back or uh, be renewed again. We can't look at the present um, prison system and be able to identify it in ways in which slavery was conducted. And so if we're going to be true to any of our work, including me, we have to say that the system has failed, uh, failed those system, uh, citizens that's looking for safety and has failed those that's looking for rehabilitation by saying that now we have to enter into the arena and put the system on trial so we can have a better outcome for the greater humanity of all. So let me ask you, Bonnie, how how do you do that? How do you manifest that desire for uh, challenging the system in your own life? How do you do that? 
Uh, well, uh, number one, I have a job that uh, work around the advocacy and the fines and fees that people have uh, assumed while they was within the system. But on my personal, when I'm not on the clock, all day long I'm challenging the government. All day long. <laughs> Anybody uh, that is in this arena that can make a systematic change economically, of changing conditions of people so we don't enter into the, uh, uh, the system of criminal activity by making sure that the necessary resources are there in the community. And then the step further is to help our community have an understanding that situations that they're living is not just self-imposed. And then how do we build political power to get out of it? Well, thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for your service to democracy uh, and to criminal justice reform. Appreciate that. And thank you for your call today. Uh, if you just tuned in, this is Midpoint on WMNF Radio, and we're talking to Thad Baraday, a former lawyer and prison inmate now working for criminal justice reform, and Pastor Justin LaRosa from the Portico, a non-traditional church in downtown Tampa with a social justice focus. You can join our conversation by calling 813-239-9663. You can email dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight five, and uh, so before the call, we were talking about whether you can hope to get justice and prison policy reforms without engaging in in politics. Uh, Andrew Warren, a twice elected local state attorney. Uh, who championed criminal justice reforms was removed by the governor, DeSantis. Uh, Larry Krasner, a reformist prosecutor in Philadelphia, also a DA there, uh, who was overwhelmingly reelected as district attorney there, was just impeached by the Pennsylvania state legislature over his progressive criminal justice policies. So... Let me ask you, what's your reaction to these hyper-political moves by politicians who oppose reforms? Well, I do not support them. (laughs) Um, I think that uh, progressive prosecution is one of the bright lights in the field of criminal justice reform that should be a non-controversial area that we can look at to try and move the needle in the right direction. So... um, you know, Andrew Warren had become a beacon of hope and progressive policies, and we have made Hillsborough County one of the fairer uh, jurisdictions in a very unfair environment, which is the state of Florida. So I hope that he will prevail in his uh, legal, legal proceedings. Yeah. Um, I hope that he will be reinstated. I hope that you know, the people's voice, as demonstrated through the electoral process, will be recognized and, and allowed to continue. And I think uh, leaders like Andrew Warren are bringing the type of uh, mindset that we need in the system. And I was certainly supportive of seeing that here in Hillsborough County. Um, you know, the, the caller raised the question to me of, reform versus revolution. You know, are there are many people in my space who believe that the system is so corrupt and so inherently entrenched in its bias and in its cycle of profit and um, jobs and, you know, the, it is a prison industrial complex yes. and there's no question about that. 
but I'm trained as a lawyer. I studied public policy in college, and I believe we have to work for reform versus revolution and do what we can to fix the system from within. Um, we were talking about partisan issues in politics. You know, I, I've been a lifelong Republican, which is curious for me, given my circumstances. And everybody who goes to prison in a white collar case starts as a Republican and comes out something else. Well, I still retain my affiliation and my historic grouping, you know, whether it's the red and the blue, they they are large tents on both sides. But I believe in the system. I believe in free markets. I believe in what would be considered traditional conservative Republican values. That's, that's my orientation. I'm a business guy. And I believe there are ways that we can use market incentives to make the system better. And to what Pastor LaRosa just said about, you know, putting profit at the bottom of the criminal justice, that's true. I think that we we should not have a justice system that is for profit. That's one of my questions that a listener has asked is what what is your feeling about that as a business guy? Uh, you know, should we have for profit prisons? Because the prison industry in Florida has been largely and I'm talking about state prisons now, not federal, but uh but even with the federal there's you know, uh a a large uh, number of facilities that are run by for-profit companies. Yeah, so I, I think the issue of for-profit prisons has become a bit of a red herring that is not the best focus of our attention and resources for those of us working on criminal justice reform. It's about 7 or 8% of the total prison population who are in for-profit prisons. In Florida, some of the for-profit institutions are ones that I'd rather be housed in than the state-run facilities. They have air conditioning. They tend to be newer. They have more access to programs. So I, I think that is diver- the issue of for-profit prisons is diverting our attention from the core issues, which are very harsh punitive sentencing, particularly that's drug policy-focused in a way that is contrary to our best interests. That's working against what we really all care about as a humanitarian society. So you think the focus needs to be on the front end of why people are going to prison rather than on the back end, which is... From a policy standpoint, yes. I think we should reduce the front end of the funnel where Mm -hmm. we are sucking our youth. We are largely feeding on children in our system today and and routing it's the school to prison pipeline yes. and, and and routing them into this institutional system that is not well designed to uh, support their growth and and needs now it's also pretty dangerous i think we need to talk about the fact that florida has the third largest prison system in the country the department of corrections in florida is the state's largest agency uh, but in Florida, we have critical understaffing 
of our state prisons. We have major health care issues. There are dangerous conditions inside. You know, the prisoners are forced into idleness. There's no programs. There's a starvation food contract. No air conditioning. No air conditioning in Florida. Uh, there's medical neglect. There's price de- gouging and limited communication uh, opportunities in contact with the outside world. Uh, they're taking away our mail. Yeah, they're taking away mail now. You have to send a postcard. You yeah. can't even send a letter. Um, and we've actually had to close prisons in Florida, state prisons. And we've had to close work release centers, uh, which is supposed to be a transitional uh, place for people coming out of prison because of the lack of staffing. And because we've had to close places like that, we've had to crowd more prisoners into other prisons, most of which are not air conditioned. Uh, and so Florida prisons right now are, are a powder keg. I mean, there's, there's God forbid, but there's c- going to be an explosion, uh, a riot, something terrible could happen. They could explode at any minute. And even if they don't, we are close to have, having to make emergency releases of prisoners into the community. And these are the same people who've been warehoused, and treated terribly with no rehabilitation at all. And these are the people that are coming to a neighborhood near you because of our uh, our lack of, of focus and resources into the system. So you're absolutely right. The current system is in crisis and we can't only focus on the front end. In terms of dealing with the circumstances we have in hand now, we have to deal with the issue of mass warehousing that is a failed public policy. I believe that crime is mostly a young man's game and there is a phenomenon among incarcerated of aging out of bad behavior. There are, among the litany of statistics that you just cited about Florida's correction system, we house one of the largest proportions of elderly inmates, inmates 55 and up, who are clearly no longer, if, if they ever were, they are no longer a threat to society. Many of them have rehabilitated themselves to the best of their ability while they were inside. But at this point, they should be returned to community where their healthcare needs can be more effectively addressed. They can live out their senior years uh, in peace and taxpayers don't have to foot the bill for their healthcare, their food, their housing, and, and their whole life and that to me is a common sense thing that we should absolutely do, but we're probably not going to do in Florida, frankly. Right. Let, they, let me take a call from Clay. Clay, you're on the air. Yes, thanks for taking my call. And I first want to thank them, uh, your two guests, for all the hard work they're doing and what they're doing. And I wanted to point out something to start with. That last caller is Sister Connie Burton. You kept calling her Bonnie. She's one of the finest activists in our community that I know of. Oh, I apologize, Connie. I I got the wrong name from my phone answerer. She, she wouldn't she wouldn't correct you. So anyway, um, what I'd like to I, I'd like like to say that she's absolutely right. The system's broken. I don't know how we call it a justice system because there's no justice in it. And you, as a former um, uh, defense attorney, know this. Most people never even get their day in court. The whole thing is broken, and we need to rebuild it from the ground up. We need well, I don't think you're going to get an argument from any of the people here in the studio today, Clay. So what, what is your question for the guests? Well, I didn't have a question. I just wanted to thank them for what they're doing. Thank you for the show. And, okay. Uh, tell you, 
Sister Connie Burton. Uh, All right. Well, thank you very much. And again, Connie, I apologize for calling you by the wrong name. All right. Let me take a call from uh, Dennis in Pinellas Park. Dennis, you're on the air. Hi, this is Dennis. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. What's your Thanks. comment? Well, I, I, I had the opportunity of speaking with a gentleman who self-identified as a rabbi. And what he informed me was is that the eye for an eye principle, which I believe is the basis for almost all of this, he said that it isn't supposed to be an exact retribution. What's supposed to be done is restitution. Okay, and that, what we fail to recognize is that restitution is totally different than punishment. Okay, and, and that is something I would like them to deal with. Also, when you think about the criminal justice system, if you want to describe it as such, the way it should have been approached is much like the defund the police. Do nothing but give numbers as to what it costs to get bad results. <laughs> okay. Thank you for your thank you for All your right, time. Dennis, thank you for your call. Uh, you know, that's interesting. There was an article about 2 weeks ago in the Sunday New York Times about or maybe it was last week about um, the uh, uh, an encounter between um, in the early pre-United States uh, when the British were uh, here that they had an interaction with um, an indigenous tribe in, in upstate New York and two British fur trappers killed a member of the tribe and the British wanted to hang them um, and kill them for having committed murder. Um, I think they were pretty protective of the relationship with the tribe at that time. But the tribe was basically saying, no, uh, that is not going to bring back our brother. Uh, killing them is not going to bring back our brother. What we want is restitution because that will help us collectively um, and uh, it, will, it will not make us whole, but it will help us. And so I think that that's kind of along the lines of what this caller, Dennis, was saying, is that there are so many instances where uh, different cultures, you know, don't have a retributive uh, philosophy of criminal justice as much as they have a philosophy that demands more restitution uh, than punishment. And, you know, that is not something that our system generally has. I mean, now, many cases, most cases, at the time of sentencing, a judge will impose an amount of restitution um, if it's a financial crime, if it's a crime of theft or, or fraud or something where people lost money, they'll impose a, a, a restitution order and they'll also impose a whole bunch of fines and fees associated with court costs and investigative costs and things like that. Um, but we don't generally have a culture of restitution over punishment. It's an add-on. It's something thrown in at the end. What do you, what do you think about that? So I agree, and my mission, my work is to try and chip away at that culture. I think changing the culture to make it more restorative is exactly the way that we need to go. I was told while I was in prison that it is God's job to judge man. It's man's job to be merciful with each other. And that has been my philosophy that I've used in my work. Let me take a call from Terry. Can I jump in on that right uh, yeah, before? Sure. Just real quickly. I think there's something about kind of individual responsibility. 
that that has with retro, uh, with um, restitution, right? Acknowledgement of doing something wrong and trying. To, it's a, like a twelve step principle, right? Like I've done something wrong, I've got to make it right. Like if I if I stick a knife in this table that I'm in, uh, saying I'm sorry to it doesn't make it right. I got to sand it down, paint it again, right? So where's the balance? How can we help people acknowledge? acknowledge uh, what was wrong, both individually and acknowledge in the system, and then how do we make it right? How do we realign it? That's a, part of that's a part of redemption, right? There is grace, especially in the spiritual, uh, but in this place, um, in this existence, in our reality, we're, there's also got to be outcomes. So I think there's that balance there, right? Like, how do we deal with it? Right. Let me take a call from Terry, who's been on uh, a while. Terry, thank you for your patience. What do you have to say? Oh, you're quite welcome. And by the way, that New York tribe was the Iroquois, which have the longest existing democracy in the history of the world. Yeah, you're right. 1964. I apologize. I couldn't and remember the name of the tribe, and I didn't want to. Our system was based on theirs, not the Bible, according okay. to Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Okay. That they came as close to it, and the problem with with prisons, I've had I have a had a friend that went to prison for a while, and I also have an uncle who was a judge, and the judges it's it's not as corrupt as it used to be, but you <laughs> the system is is designed for you for a statement, the defendant right? yeah. to lose. Yeah, I th uh, I say that, that all the time from, from my thirty years. Yeah, I say that all the time from my 30 plus years in the criminal justice system defending people that once the fickle finger of fate points to you, that it's kind of all over because there's an institutional right. oh, yeah. momentum that that can't be stopped. Uh, usually it's not and always true. Is, is the name of their game. Right. And if you, if you, if you look at the money and you look at the, these these private corporations that we privatize everything, which is a disaster. But these companies give an equal amount to both sides of the aisle. Right. They need to make money. There was a period of time, I'm not sure if it's still true, but where the state of Florida was richly invested in Corrections Corporation as part of their pension plan. Yeah. So it was real important to send lots of people to prison. Well, thank you, Terry, and, for your comments. I appreciate it. I've got to cut you off now, from me but thank you. Good luck, and thank you for taking my call. All right. Um, you know, prisoners and felons are the least powerful constituents in politics. No one represents them. You know, they mostly can't vote, even though the voters of Florida passed a constitutional amendment restoring their voting rights. They have no money, so they can't contribute to campaigns of the people who make the laws. So I wonder, Thad, um, is one way that you use your privilege to persuade people in the community who are so far removed from inmates and felons and people caught up in the system of the need to see returning citizens as worthy of respect and a hand up? And, and you too, Pastor Justin. I mean, your congregation is, at least Hyde Park Methodist, is, is a very rich congregation. It's uh, filled with a lot of, uh, you know, white, South Tampa, rich people, frankly. Privileged people. Privileged yeah, people. True. And so both of you have a, a natural constituency, constituency of people 
who uh, are don't look like most of the people in the prison system, uh, don't have the life of most of the people in the prison system, but you have the opportunity to to speak to people who look like you, who are like you, who uh, you know have the same life experience as you, and I, I see you as kind of maybe both ambassadors, you know, from this world that a lot of your your com- you know your compatriots, your cohort, you know, have no experience with. What do you think about that? My goal is to live my life awake and aware. And I want to be aware of what's really going on and what's really happening in society. And what I speak about from my experience inside our nation's criminal legal system is what's really going on. And like you said, Shelley, you can't unsee it once you've seen it. And as Terry, the caller said, it's less corrupt than it used to be. Think about that statement. The final thing is that the system is much, much larger than we give it credence for. While there are 2 million people incarcerated in our nation's prisons and jails, almost 2 million people at any one point in time, when you think of the throughput of the system, people being held on pretrial detention, so that's a mm-hmm. big issue we can focus on. These are people who have not yet been convicted of any crimes. and Because yet we still have money bail. Exactly. And so, you know, we want people from my party want to get up on soapboxes and talk about constitutional rights and and liberties, but look how we're actually implementing those rights in the system on a day-to-day basis. At any rate, when you look at the people held in pretrial detention as well as people post-release, and 85% of people do get out eventually, so people do come out of the system on the back end, it's almost 7 million people who are under some form of correction or control in our system today. That is the the population the size of a good-sized state like Massachusetts or Tennessee. And the system is growing. It's feeding on our youth. So for those privileged people like me who think that they can be blissfully unaffected and unaware, watch out. Because the system is coming, like you said, it's a roulette wheel, you're gambling. And this is what I share to other people like me coming from, you know, corporate boardrooms around right. America. It could, the fickle finger of fate could be pointing at you. Yeah, we, we had no idea that the criminal justice system had anything to do with our business operations at my company. Right. And that's, that's one of the things that I, I want to just go back to for both of you. Do you think you both can talk to the people who serve on juries, the people who run businesses, who have job openings, the people who do hiring, landlords who have rentals, managers in the giant bureaucracy that keeps returning citizens locked into the system, forever paying fees and fines and taking mandated classes and anger management for no good reason, keeping them off computers and our of bank accounts and all the myriad ways that we make it almost impossible for returning citizens without resources to become productive members of society. You look like the people who control all of that. You look like them. You talk like them. You come from the same educational background, the business background, um, and 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 you speak to them, Pastor Justin, every Sunday or maybe more frequently than that. You you know you talk to the people who make those rules, and you're their neighbors, and 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 uh, your crime was of a type, as you said, that maybe they can see that there, but for the grace of the goddess, go I. So I just wonder if um, if you're not the best position to to uh, 
I'd know, love to, to speak to that. Okay, briefly, because yes. we've got to get off. Here, here's, here's the quick thing. Um, there's a couple of tangible things that your listeners can do. Uh, Hillsborough Organization for Progress and Equality. Look it up. Get involved. That's number one. At the Portico, we're about people, place, and movements. Conversation, connection with each other, and participating in community change. The answer is yes. You've got to be a voice. You've got to engage. And you got to move forward. I'm glad you brought up the. I'm glad you brought up hope. Um, if you joined us late in the show, feel free to go back and listen on demand from the Midpoint archives at wmnf.org/midpoint or on the WMNF app or find us at WMNF Midpoint wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to refer again to Thad's own podcast, Redemption Radio, which is available, I'm sure, on Apple. Uh, or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank my WMNF volunteers, Jessica Green on the soundboard and Barbara Fling, who answers the phones for us. And as always, I thank you, the WMNF listeners, for your interest and support of Midpoint. If you enjoyed the show, please consider dropping us a tip in the tip jar and please direct your donation to MPW Midpoint Wednesday. In fact, as you are doing your holiday shopping this season, how about a true sustainable gift? The gift of community. No plastic consumerism crap destined for a landfill. No money for the big boxes or billionaires. How about a gift membership to WMNF Community Radio? You can easily do that online for as little as $25. More if you want some WMNF swag to go along with it. Just put in the notes of your donation that it is a gift for your loved one or friend. And if you include their address, the fabulous Miss Julie will send them an acknowledgement along with the coveted WMNF bumper sticker. No fuss, no muss, no bother, and nothing but love. I want to thank my guests today, Thad Baraday, a former lawyer and former prison inmate. Thanks for being with us, Thad. Thank you so much for having me, Shelley. It's been an honor to be here. And Pastor Justin LaRosa from The Portico, which is the Hyde Park United Methodist Church downtown branch, which has a social justice mission. Uh, Now, please uh, stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss, who is up next. We are WMNF Tampa, and uh, I'll be back next week. We gotta fight the powers that be.